founded at the beginning of the UK lockdown. A bit lit is about conversation, celebrating and exploring theatre, literature and creative work across all periods and of all kinds. We've talked to professional wrestlers and about Ghostbusters and medieval sex positivity. We've looked at the histories of race, gender and sexuality. We followed migrating coconuts and the history of wine and cheese. We've gone from Jane Austen and Shakespeare to EastEnders via the history of early television, young adult fiction, photography, animation and documentary making. And with over 100 films already, many other subjects as well. Join the conversations at our website, abitlit.co or on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at abitlit. Welcome to a special edition of A Bit Lit. So today we're excited. We get to turn the tables on Andy Kesson and we get to ask him some questions about his work and, and mounting these amazing public facing early modern literature projects that he's done. Uh, so a man who needs no introduction, Andy Kesson. Thanks so much for doing this today. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, my name is Jeff Wilson. I have a project that I'm kind of working on called An Oral History of Public Shakespeare. I really wanted to talk to Andy about some of his work, and we figured that the audience in a bitlet would be fascinated to hear some of the behind-the-scenes stories of how these projects have come together. Uh, so, Andy, thanks so much for doing this. <laughs> Thank you very much for, uh, for suggesting it. I'm really excited, and I feel we should say for our audience as well that we will be inviting you back for a more additional a bit lit and we'll, we'll hope to post these two films shortly, you know, close together. So um, uh, do watch this one, but even more excitingly, make sure you watch out for Jeff Wilson's own A Bit Lit in the days to come. All right, so, so Andy, um, in the conversations I've been having with folks who are doing public facing work, it seems like a lot of this often has to do with some kind of values that you had instilled in you when you were young or early in your career. So get us kind of started off. I'm wondering, is that the case for you? I, don't, I, I can't answer to uh, when I was uh, very young, but certainly at the start of my career, um, I began working at Contact Theatre in Manchester in the UK, which is um, and was the most amazing theatre for thinking about um, young people in the theatre and thinking very hard about who is and is not welcome, both to watch theatre, to make theatre, to, to write. Um, and so from, from those very kind of early days, uh, I've been really interested in that question of... Uh, uh, firstly, of just um, speaking to the public, but secondly, of who gets to speak and who gets to count as the public. Um, and Contact uh, created work which happened um, not just on stage, but also within communities and on the street. And so I was thinking quite hard about where the public spaces might be for theatrical work. And there's, there's so much, right, that academics can learn from theatres about how to connect with public and build communities. Um, so let's kind of kind of track through your career here a little bit, Andy. So so um, tell us sort of the story of how you ended up at I think the Shakespeare Institute, right? And then how you found your way beyond Shakespeare to John Lilly. <laughs> uh, well, um, from the time I was working at Contact Theatre, and probably also before that, when I was towards the end of my time as a school student, um, I was really interested in the relationship between Shakespeare's contemporaries and Shakespeare himself. So certainly at Contact Theatre, Shakespeare was sort of the enemy in many ways because he was often the answer to the question of why can't we get funding for new writing uh, and for new work? Um, and at school, I was asked to read um, brilliant plays like Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, Antony and Cleopatra, which is my favorite Shakespeare play. But I was also encouraged to read um, Marlowe's Edward II 
and John Webster's The Duchess of Malfi and the non-Shakespearean plays there spoke to me so much more powerfully. I think probably because both Edward II and The Duchess of Malfi are intimately excited by the idea of agency, sexuality, um, gender-based identity, um, in a way that the Shakespeare plays just weren't quite so keenly speaking to me as a 17, 18 year old. Um, and I carried that with me through contact and then into my academic work, I think, of wanting to know how the very odd relationship between Shakespeare and his contemporaries um, comes, in, comes into being. Is that something that happens in Shakespeare's lifetime? Is it something that happens uh, more recently? Um, as something that's really animated the way I think about, about the, the drama of that period. Yeah, that, that's great. And, and I think one of the interests that we share is kind of in how value gets attributed to various uh, writers and authors, especially in the early modern age. So I've been a, a fan and a follow of your work, especially since the Elizabethan Top 10, uh, the edited collection that you worked on. So I'm wondering if you could kind of tell us a little bit about how that came together. And then also, just do, do you see any kind of connections between your early scholarly interest and in, in how value gets attributed uh, to authors and, and, and uh, a marketplace and then this later work that you've been doing in, in publicly accessible early modern studies? Mm. Um, well, we, we are quite rightly in this film celebrating public facing work, but I also want to celebrate uh, academics who support early career scholars coming into the field. And I was very lucky that um, Emma Smith approached me to talk about putting this edited collection together. So the Elizabethan Top 10 is a, really a book which asks, if you walked into a bookshop in 1600, what would be next to a Shakespeare play and what might be outselling it? And we have some brilliant chapters in there by a wealth of different contributors who are themselves from a different range of scholarly backgrounds, thinking about um, religious texts, thinking about um, unusual forms of poetry, thinking about the very early newspaper, thinking about wallpaper, and really encouraging us to rethink how we think about print and popularity when it comes to Shakespeare's period. Um, and I guess the continuities there from the earlier work to what's happening now is really just that, that kind of, that interest in trying to remap our understanding of how those things sit alongside each other. And what happens if we ask what the public view is of these various kinds of textual productions? Yeah, and, and, and so one kind of aspect that is particularly fascinating to me is, is you've written about this in the Lily book and you've written about sort of the, the collaborative nature of early modern theater work, of early modern authorship. And I'm, I'm wondering again, if, if there are any connections to just the, the kind of immensely collaborative nature of the public facing projects that you do, whether that's before Shakespeare or a bit lit, um, and any parallels there that you see? Yeah, definitely. Um, there've been some very interesting conversations on the uh, Before Shakespeare website. It's a project I was involved with around collaboration, both from people writing blog posts and then people responding to the blog posts in comments about whether collaboration is a good thing or not and how we all feel about it. And it does fascinate me as a, a question. I think our profession seems to encourage single authorship as the kind of gold standard or the expected model of, uh, of, of research and of writing. And certainly speaking for myself, I don't, I don't really have that much interest in working with myself. I know all of my best jokes already. Unfortunately, I also know all of my worst jokes already. And I'd much rather work with and learn from other people than, than be on my own. And I guess that feels like an especially pertinent thing to say in 2020 when we're 
you know, the world is encouraging us to work on our own in ways that um, have never felt more kind of difficult to overcome. Um, but yes, I, I love collaboration. I love thinking with people rather than on my own. Um, and it, I, I think that probably does inform how I think about collaboration in the period because so often approaches to collaboration from some of our scholarly colleagues is all about collaboration as a problem that needs to be disentangled and solved and we park that person's authorship over here and we park that person's authorship over there and congratulations we've segregated and headed off and undone the collaboration whereas for me I think what's exciting is the act of collaboration itself the I don't often use this word but this the synergies the energies the uh, um, the kinetic working together of various minds I think is really exciting and, and fascinates me whereas as I say the kind of more standard way of thinking about it is to try and segregate um, the, the authorship off whether that be you know at one and two is written by author a the other acts written by author b even on that model it seems to me that author a and author b are having very interesting conversations both before and after that process um, and that's where I think my my attention wants to to fall yeah, and it's fascinating, right? It kind of goes back to some of the, the um, analogies to theater, right? So, so theater is so much better at public engagement because theater is an inherently collaborative project. You know, it's between authors and, and actors and directors and uh, crew and so forth. And academia just doesn't really have that collaborative intrinsic quality to it. And, and so I think, you know, kind of, as you say, sort of the, the, the you know, lone scholar lecturing from a podium is sort of the image we have in our mind of academia. Whereas a packed public theater house and people having conversations out in the lobby afterward is the image we have of theater. So, so I want to kind of test out a, a, an idea with you and, and feel free to, to push back against this or dispute it. But um, it seems to me that we could draw some parallels between the way that uh, theater worked in, in the early modern age, that you have um, kind of learned folks who are taking information, ideas from the academia of their time and they're transforming them around a little bit and then they're turning them into something that is publicly facing, is accessible, is enjoyable to a wider audience who probably doesn't have much uh, scholarly footing. Um, and, and some of the public facing work that's been going on recently in the 21st century and Shakespeare studies and early modern studies and beyond. So I'm, I'm wondering if, again, you see any parallels there between kind of public facing academic work in the early modern theater and the way that some folks have been uh, kind of working with that energy recently. Um, I definitely think it's a shame if we cordon off uh, early modern theatrical work to simply a scholarly community, which often our working practices and our publication formats are in danger of, of doing. Um, because one of the things that early modern theatre is doing, and I think you were suggesting this or alluding to it just now, Jeff, is they're sort of inventing a form of, of public. Um, and certainly organizing and probably reorganizing where that public goes, where they take their bodies around the city. Um, but these are fairly unique spaces, I think, for gathering together people in their thousands who are strangers, uh, who, whereas in the city, normally I think you would be moving and congregating amongst communities that you, you know. Obviously, there's lots of ways in which moving across London involves moving through strangers. But I think collecting with strangers for hours at a time in the name of thinking about very complex stories and ideas, often um, challenging to the point of being illegal in the things that are encouraging you to, to think about and ask questions about uh, is really exciting. 
And yes, I think the moment we as scholars start to experiment with who our audience might be and rethink some of the expectations that are implicit in our current decision-making. Um, you know, the moment I choose to publish something in a particular format, I've made a decision about who will get to read it. The moment I give it a certain kind of title, I'm making decisions about who might read it. And I think often those decisions are not fully thought through and explicit in much academic work. And the moment we start to rethink that and uh, widen the potential scope for, the, for our work, we're, we're then asking uh, questions too, I think, about our subject matter. What, are, what is the public interest now of this early experiment in public making? Yeah, that, that's amazing. Um, so let, let's start to turn to some of the specific projects before Shakespeare and a bit lit that you've been able to, to work on here. Um, frame, frame it for us a little bit, just in terms of, you know, we, we all have kind of our academic mentors, but then also, and, and feel free to give some shout outs there, but also you've, uh, you know, you've had certain mentors who have helped you been able to do kind of this public facing work that speaking mm -hmm. for myself, at least graduate school didn't teach me how to do. And we've all been kind of figuring it out as, as we're going. So in terms of kind of doing the, the public facing work, who has helped you sort of figure out how, how to go about that? Um, there are lots of people I want to give uh, shout outs to. Um, but I have to confess also that I was pretty ignorant of the public facing work that was happening when we started off with Before Shakespeare. Um, and one person who was really fundamental in the decision to have a website was Jennifer Richards, who, um, when I was writing the funding bid, said to me, you will need to have a website for that project if you're going to win funding. So I just put it down as an output and didn't really know what the website would look like. And then we were lucky enough to work with Callan Davis uh, on Before Shakespeare alongside Lucy Munro. And Callan designed the most fantastic website. Um, and as I say, I didn't really understand what its use might be, but the moment we had it, uh, we suddenly found that we were we were writing for it and we were getting very interesting responses to to that early writing. And then that just sort of became self-sustaining, I think. So I'm not sure we did have specific models in mind. Um, Many-Headed Monsters, uh, Many-Headed Many Monster, uh, Laura Sanger and Mark Hellwood's website um, was certainly a very big influence, I think particularly as Callum was designing the website. But um, in my case, purely through dint of my own ignorance, I think um, I, was, I was guilty of trying to reinvent the wheel. Um, and as I say, the reason I wanted to speak publicly was that, has, that was where my, my career had begun, not in academia, but in the theater. And I think I assume a public audience before I assume an, an academic one in my work. And I'm, I'm quite excited about that. I, en I enjoy that. And I think it, it changes the things that I say and the way that I say them and the, and the way I think about them in ways which certainly I, I found um, productive. Uh, and so, as I say, the website then sort of became self-sustaining and some of our most fundamental collaborators became our readers um, who helped to change the direction of the, of the work we were doing. And certainly some of the projects I'm involved with now are simply the result of readers saying to me, this is exciting, you're doing this, can we do this other thing together? Um, so it, it really has been, as I say, it's been productive of, of future work as well. Yeah, it, it's always amazing to me um, because this this public facing work is relatively new and, and we're all kind of testing it out, how much it comes together kind of by accident and by testing, you know, various strategies and then people get excited and it builds community and then that kind of, uh, you know, gains momentum and that's that's amazing. So 
take us behind the scenes of before Shakespeare, kind of track back to how did this idea come together? What were some of the early conversations about? And, and just sort of give us the story behind the story there. Yeah, thank you. Um, before I do that, Jeff, if it's right to challenge very gently something you said, just because it fascinates me, um, that I agree with you that these mediums often feel new, but at the same time, they are also hilariously old. Like uh, I started writing blog posts in 2016. I, I am not ahead of the curve. And um, it is sort of fascinating to think about how new they still feel within our, our professional context, I think. I still get colleagues saying with great amazement to me, oh my goodness, you've written a blog, as if I'd launched a rocket into space or something very newfangled like that. Um, but it's kind of, it is interesting, isn't it? Like blogs, blogs were probably old at the turn of the century <laughs> to, many, to many people. Um, and it's kind of interesting thinking about how we feel about them in terms of their newness um, from, our, you know, from our weird professional viewpoint. I don't know if, how you feel about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the it, that kind of work was not something that was um, part of my training, you know, and, and is not something that I think is valued in the way that it should be and the way that uh, academia in the US thinks about uh, promotion, tenure and employment. Um, and I think that's uh, to our detriment that, that we haven't found ways to institutionally value and to um, prioritize work that is engaged with the public and is accessible to the public. Um, it's, I think the strength of that work depends upon the scholarly writing that has kind of been the tradition for the past 100 years, but we can't kind of stop there. We, we kind of need to think a little bit more about these other forms that, as you say, um, online communities, digital communities, um, theatrical communities have been doing this and doing it well for a long time. And so scholars could have a lot to learn from that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Um, so to go back to your earlier question about where Before Shakespeare came from. Um, I don't know if this will land home for our colleagues or not, but um, I always feel that the project I'm currently working on is the project I needed to have done before I could finish my last project. Um, and I often, you know, when I'm speaking to uh, grad students and early career researchers who are just finishing up their first PhD project um, and are wondering what they will do next, I often offer the slightly pornographic sounding advice, but it's not supposed to be pornographic, but I often say, tell them to, to nurture their peripheries and to think about what is on the periphery of their, their vision that you've spent all these years looking um, in a kind of laser-like focus on a particular issue. And what are the, the bigger questions or the wider questions which have been hovering around in the background? So my PhD was on John Lilly. And um, the thing that struck me most, as you say, I started working on John Lilly at Shakespeare Institute um, Liddy is only 10 years older than Shakespeare, but it amazed me that those 10 years were really destroying my ability to understand the theatre culture in which Lily operated, that we have a very firm, I think, sense of what theatres look like and how they worked in the 1590s, but cycle ahead to the early 1580s and dare one say it into the 1570s or 60s, and really there are these massive question marks about what is happening in those periods in um, not just in theatrical, but perhaps also literary uh, contexts. Um, and so before Shakespeare was really trying to answer that question um, and thinking about how playhouses happen as an architectural form, as an entrepreneurial idea, um, as ways of, as I said before, of remapping urban space, what it means to start building not one, but many spaces for regular performance to a public paying audience. Uh, re very regularly, 
Uh, what does that mean in a city which didn't have that previously uh, at, at, at such a large extent and in a geographical context where other cities also do not seem to have this multi-venue outbreak, if that's the right word, that London seems to have? So that was the kind of um, the opening provocation of before Shakespeare. What exactly is happening before Shakespeare to enable someone born in 1564, as Shakespeare is, to arrive in London and there are suddenly playhouses, not one of which is older than him. They've all grown up in his lifetime, as far as we know, and yet he's able to come there and there's a, a generation which has made theatre, uh, made theatre in every sense of that phrase, to the point where he has a viable career. So it's really trying to answer how, how that happens. That's amazing. And, and can you kind of take us behind the scenes to some of the nuts and bolts of how the post came together or any, any kind of memorable writings that were done for before Shakespeare? Um, the, I, I, there's no single answer to that question, which is why I'm hesitating. Uh, some of them are motivated by the archival research we were doing. Uh, so for example, one of the most important posts comes out of one of the most important um, discoveries, if that's the right word, or, or re-readings of the period. Um, so one of the things that's really struck us once we started working on this particular time period, so we're working 1560s to 1590s, roughly, and, and we are trying to think about playhouses in a very kind of generous sense of that term. So we're not just thinking about the large amphitheatre amphitheatres which are um, beyond the immediate outskirts of the city, but we're thinking about all spaces which are regularly staging plays for a paying audience, and that includes indoor spaces, but also the inns uh, hosting plays regularly. And once you start to look at that period, one of the things that really jumps out is that 50% of the playhouses have women at the top of their leadership structures. Um, and 50% of the people leading the early playhouses were also women. That sounds like the same statistic said twice, but actually it's slightly different statistics in each case. Um, so that immediately prompted a blog post once we'd thought about that. And we hadn't discovered any of those uh, female entrepreneurs. It was simply that they occupied a slightly different place in the way we thought about evidence. So it was about joining dots there for us, um, which is why I'm hesitating to use the word discovery, but it was a kind of a, an insight based on where we happened to be looking and how we happened to be looking at the evidence. Um, so that was one one blog post that jumped out at us. Um, we were very aware, or certainly I was very aware, that we were working on the Before Shakespeare project at the same time that the new Oxford Shakespeare was coming out, and suddenly there was a, a pronounced public debate around authorship and attribution. And actually, I'm completely fascinated by this, but authorship and attribution studies um, really seem to occupy the public conversation around Shakespeare. They feel relatively... Uh, marginal to scholarly conversations um, themselves, but they are anything but marginal when it comes to public conversations around Shakespeare. And again, that that really fascinates me as to that that mismatch. I think is really revealing. Um, but uh, certainly, I ended up writing a post which was about that issue of authorship and, and attribution, as seen from the point of view of the Before Shakespeare. Um, project, which ended up as easily our most controversial blog post. It was very odd waking up a couple of days later and realizing we'd had something like 70 comments in the in the first two days. And then that, that kind of rolled and we had other people writing uh, posts for us and responses. I wrote a couple of posts following up on, on those issues. So it was really fascinating. Again, that felt like a collaborative process in itself, um, thinking about, about attribution. It was a, a collaborative argument about collaboration. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's great. And 
So let's flash forward to <laughs> March 2020 and coronavirus kind of global pandemic hits. Um, can you just kind of narrate a little bit sort of what was your experience with that and how did a bit kind of grow out of that? Um, well, like everyone else, professionally and personally, everything was bad. Um, and I was surrounded by very dear friends and colleagues, both um, kind of privately, but also watching people publicly talking about this issue on places like Twitter, um, asking why the arts and humanities mattered in a, in a global crisis. And that I was seeing, that question was being raised by uh, academics and it was being raised by um, performance practitioners of all kinds. And it made me really sad because it seems to me that um, the arts and humanities always matter. And I can understand why a, um, a global pandemic uh, makes them seem to matter less, but actually they couldn't have mattered more during 2020. They couldn't have mattered more during um, this emergency that we are still uh, a part of. And I wanted an outlet which would just allow us to to celebrate them, but also to um, to think about them and ask why and how they matter. So um, I was lucky enough. I, I mean, I literally just sent a text message to pretty much every contact I have. I must have driven people crazy and just said, I'm thinking about doing this. Would you be interested in, in uh, joining me on this adventure? And Callan Davis and Emma Whipday both responded and they've been running this project with me. I think we started on the second day of lockdown in the UK. So we were very um, fast moving and we, we simply had no idea what we would do or, or how we would do it, but uh, it would be a, a format for being uh, enthusiastic and celebratory about the really important work which is happening in the worlds of research and creativity. So that, that was the idea. Um, the big challenge for us, particularly with us three as collaborators, is that we all work as researchers in the very in the same fairly narrow historical and geographical area. So we've always had a, a bias in that direction, which you know we're not we're not ashamed of. We love those topics; that's why we work on them. But um, at the heart, the project is intended to be much much wider than that, and to think um, across all fields of creativity and research. And I think we're still working on that. But I've been really enjoying having the the crazy mishmash we've had so far uh, on a bit of it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, and, and so can, can you say a word just about kind of how you sort of navigate your relationship to Shakespeare and some of these public facing works? Because, you know, I, I think one of the great things about before Shakespeare is kind of build as a little bit kind of Shakespeare adjacent, if not uh, maybe a little bit throwing shade at Shakespeare. Right. Um, so so um, sort of, you know, so much public facing early modern work has to do with Shakespeare. And that's kind of a, a, a door opener. Right. But then there's all these fascinating things that you've been doing that are have nothing to do with Shakespeare whatsoever. So how do you kind of navigate that? It is difficult. Um, I, I love Shakespeare and I am very fond of my Shakespeare colleagues. But I do think that Shakespeare and sometimes Shakespeare scholarship can get in the way of a wider embrace of the literary and more widely artistic culture of the period. And that he's come to stand uh, in front of and therefore for a lot of the things which make this period really exciting and sort of acted, acted as a weird hoover sucking up all of the all of the glory. Um, and I often wonder when I see even the best Shakespeare scholarship making claims about Shakespeare's brilliance. I always wonder what would happen if you if you cross the word Shakespeare out and and re uh, and put early modern drama 
in its place, whether the sentence would still work. And it is astonishing to me how often it absolutely would. Um, so it's not about trying to, to get rid of Shakespeare, but simply to um, give weight and give serious attention to, and also non-serious attention, because I'm a big fan of non-serious attention, uh, to um, the people who have been left in, in Shakespeare's wake um, and not just the people, but also the buildings and the collections of people, the collaborative networks underpinning um, the theatre of his time. So, yeah, I have a, a strange relationship with him, which I guess is a love-hate relationship, um, simply because he, uh, he seems to be uh, operating as a bit of a, an intellectual black hole, I think, for a lot of the work and attention that could be happening elsewhere. And I guess an obvious example of that is that um, issue I said earlier about the uh, concentration of attention on something like the 1590s theatrical culture to the point where if you step back 10 years suddenly there's very little scholarship on which to rest um, that he does have a very pronounced concentration of focus on what are after all only two decades of literary and theatrical history and indeed um, a, a geographical focus too on, on the London theatres which I'm absolutely guilty of uh, same within as well. Yeah, so so Andy, you're you know fundamentally a historicist, right? Gloriously a historicist. Um, so, but I'm wondering, just kind of uh, work with me here a little bit, if you will. What happens if we take kind of the historicist methodology that is so associated with early modern studies, and then we turn that lens on this recent public-facing Shakespeare studies that have been going on? So, in other words, how would we historicize the rise over the past? 20, 30 years of scholars who are interested in doing this kind of public facing work. What are the, the kind of material conditions of society out of which that grows? What are kind of the material conditions of, of academia out of which that grows? So uh, help us out here to kind of understand this, this um, sort of uh, phenomenon. What, what do you think here? Well, um, you are right to identify me as a historicist. I tend to confess that I'm a boring historicist because I really am. Um, but precisely because I'm a boring historicist, I'm a little bit reticent about giving too many grand narratives because I'm not an expert of the last 30 years of history, despite having uh, uh, ostensibly lived through them myself. Um, I definitely think that one of the exciting things that's happening at the moment, um, and I will be speaking, I think, from a quite a UK-biased uh, focus as well, I should make clear, but... Uh, one of the things I see happening more widely across the profession is um, a slowly growing willingness to listen to and learn from uh, non-academic specialists and specialisms. Um, and I'm really, really excited about that because uh, I think it challenges all kinds of assumptions we make about skill sets and knowledge making and what evidence is and how it is allowed to count in our narratives. Um, so I'm thinking there not just about theatre practitioners, um, but uh, the fields of archaeology, which have been so separate from the kinds of, of work that Shakespearean scholars um, usually do. And it's been really, I mean, pretty much everything we thought we knew about theatre has been challenged by the archaeological work. So it's a really sobering reminder not to fixate on the, on the power of the written word, whether that be uh, archival or in a, in a published book, printed book. Um, so I think that there's been a an exciting move, um, move there. I guess the material conditions most important to the last 30 years have been digital. Um, uh, and uh, it's hard to imagine 
either that work happening without that digital move, but also 2020, I keep wondering what would COVID look like if we did not have the internet? And although we've been saying what a uniquely terrible year it's been, uh, can you imagine what it would be like if we did not have this extraordinary outlet for speaking to each other, sharing with each other and communicating in the way that we, we can at the moment? Absolutely. So, so kind of following up on that, a, a final sort of wildcard question here. <laughs> Feel free to take a pass if, if you want, but um, doing public facing work can often lead to some, you know, some memorable moments of human interaction, right? And, and sometimes those are amazing and joyful and, and sometimes those are bizarre and hilarious and, and sometimes those are a bit unsettling and, and unfortunate, but I'm, I'm wondering just kind of from the, the public facing work that you've done, do you have any just kind of good can't miss stories that, that we can get down on the record here? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, partly through my own fault, there have been lots of moments where um, disaster has ensued from doing public engaging uh, work. Um, I guess the one I can probably get away with sharing is a few years ago, I was asked to go to a, um, a very large and successful music festival in the UK to accompany the performance of a of a play and um, in addition to supporting the staging of that play I was asked if I would run a workshop for the festival um, and one of the themes in the play uh, was around um, uh, violence of various kinds and I was asked if I would run a workshop on um, on violence in the period and I thought well that's a bit of a strange topic for a festival but um, no problem I will I will do my best but for some reason there was a miscommunication and I ended up being booked into a tent full of very, very small children. <laughs> and everything I had prepared for the workshop suddenly became deeply inappropriate. And I had a, a handout with the word violence right at the top of the page, which I was hiding behind my back. And I was just agreeing with um, the festival organizers that actually it wouldn't be appropriate to run this festival event and I'm, I, my, my part of the event should be canceled when suddenly I heard um, someone on a, on a microphone saying, now children, you're going to meet a doctor, a real doctor, but this doctor doesn't work in a hospital. And the next thing I know, I'm being pushed on stage, uh, flanked by two people dressed as either half of an octopus. <laughs> so when they came together, they would form a whole octopus. Um, and I had to ad lib this workshop uh, and just entirely make up its content so that it would be friendly for this group of really, really tiny and very adorable children. So sometimes this sort of work really forces you into a new relationship with ad libbing, which again, ad libbing is a hugely important issue in Shakespearean theatre that we very rarely uh, think about, um, improv, etc. Uh, but it was a very live practices research event for me where I actually, I really had to live the life of an improv person on stage to get through that event. <laughs> and, and I think that just speaks to your far ranging impact on the field of early <laughs> modern studies and beyond into children's events at musical festivals. <laughs> uh, Andy, thanks. Thanks so much. This has been the best conversation. Um, and, you know, on, on behalf of humans everywhere, thank you for all this energy you've thrown into uh, these, these amazing projects before Shakespeare and, and a bit lit. It's, it's been, um, you know, they, they've been really valuable sources, I think, of producing academic knowledge, of transferring academic knowledge to, to a public sphere, and frankly, just of kind of joy and comfort and solace during troubling times. Uh, this is really important work, so thank you so much for doing it. Thank you, Jeff. I look forward to speaking to you uh, in a few days and getting your film out as well. Absolutely. That'll be great. <laughs>